appreciate the instruments playing for us this morning. It really is a delightful to be able to sing and to have that singing supported by uh, those whom God has given ability to play an instrument. I don't uh, have that ability, but I appreciate it in those that do. Open your Bibles to uh, Romans chapter 10, please. Romans 10. If you're with us this morning and you didn't bring a Bible with you, we have a Bible available for you to, to use. It would be in the pew rack in front of you, or if you're sitting on an aisle, it would be under your seat. You'll take that Bible out and open it up to page 1134. 1134, you'll arrive at the 10th chapter of Paul's letter to the church at Rome. It's been a while. I looked back in my notes to see when's the last time we were preaching in Romans, and it was last year. And uh, actually, it was uh, it was a long time ago last year. So it's been uh, it's been a couple of months since we uh, we have been back to the book of Romans. So I'm uh, excited to be able to be back here with you this morning. But uh, let me just take a moment or two to refresh your thinking with regard to the context of what it is we're talking about here in the 10th chapter of Romans. Paul has. Uh, has been methodologically explaining and proving from the Scriptures that all people are hopelessly sinful and justly under the condemnation of God. He hammered away in the earlier part of this letter to do just that. Once bringing all under that sentence of condemnation, he began to speak about the grace of God in Jesus Christ Specifically in the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ, that is, his dying in the place of those who would have him by faith. And according to the Apostle Paul earlier in this letter, that all who cling to Christ by faith are secure in God's love no matter what troubles assail them. But that raises an obvious question for anybody who is a thinking person, and the question would be, that God made promises to the nation of Israel as well, and yet by this time it's clear that Israel has rejected her Messiah and has settled into an obstinate unbelief. Indeed, an, an unbelief that continues even to this day. And so the question that would naturally arise in people's minds is, how could Israel fall away from God if God made promises to her? How and why is it that she is not secure in those promises? And if she's not secure, how can we be secure since he's made promises to us? And so the Apostle Paul needs to address that very pressing point at this juncture in his letter before he can go on to other things. And he will do that. He will go on beginning in chapter 12 and talk about what it means to live the Christian life. But before he can do that, he has to remove this one final obstacle, and that is, what about Israel, the hardness of their heart? And so in chapters 9, 10, and 11, the apostle does just that. And in chapter 9, he speaks of Israel's fall from grace, and he attributes it to the mystery of election. And we spent a long time working through chapter 9 and trying to unpack what was there in this mystery of election. But now here in chapter 10, Paul also speaks about Israel's 
disobedience. That is, that she has fallen away by her own fault. She is guilty of rejecting her Messiah. And so Paul presents this twofold answer. He says that it is the mystery of election and it is also the disobedience of the nation. And somehow these two reasons account for the hardness of the heart of God's chosen people. Paul doesn't try to reconcile them one with another. He merely elaborates them side by side here in this epistle. And then the question comes is, has Israel been cut off permanently? Has their rejection rendered them permanently separated from God and His promises? And in chapter 11, Paul will take that up under the heading of Israel's future. And there he will speak very clearly about the future restoration of the people of Israel. So Paul is addressing this important, important issue, but he doesn't, he doesn't do it like a clinical theologian. He's not cold. He's not unfeeling towards the plight of his people. He doesn't have an attitude of spiritual superiority. For he knows very well from his own experience that the unmerited favor of God came to him, the chief of all sinners. So Paul doesn't, do, doesn't deal with this in an academic way. He bleeds, as it were, his own heart pouring out for these people. The blindness of the nation of Israel is a source of great pain for this apostle. It's a source of great pain. Three times, and I'll just turn you back to chapter 9 to refresh your memory. Three times Paul expresses personal grief over the spiritual hardness of God's people. Chapters 9 and beginning in verse 1, he says, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bear me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. And then he goes on to talk about Israel being accursed cut off from God. Chapter 10 begins in a similar fashion where he says, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. Someone asked me one time, they said, is it is it legitimate to pray for the lost in light of the great doctrine of election? And I said, well, when I read Romans chapter 10 and in verse 1, I would say that it is absolutely legitimate to pray for the lost in light of the doctrine of election because that's exactly what the Apostle Paul does here in verse 1 of chapter 10. And then over in verse 1 of chapter 11, he continues with that same kind of expression of, of personal grief and pain. And he says, I say then God has not rejected His people, has He? May it never be, he says, for I am too an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. And he goes on to speak about the future restoration. So Paul is very, very much concerned for these people, these beloved enemies of God, as it were, and he expresses it here in the first part of chapter 10. But as this chapter unfolds, what Paul really does for us is he brings us face to face with the reality that there are only two kinds of religions in the world. That essentially all of humanity, the, the entire world, and man is by nature an exceedingly religious creature can all be broken down into one of two religions. The first is the religion of self-effort. The other is the religion of grace. It is the religion of self-effort versus the religion of grace. Deep, deep down inside, all human beings know that God is righteous and they are not. And that they will stand before Him someday in the judgment, and so they, they sense in the 
depth of their heart a need to be right before their creator. They must have something that they can put forward at the judgment day and offer in exchange for their own soul. For those who practice the religion of self-effort, it is frequently a combination of religious zeal and good works. Some brew of religious zeal and good works. But for those who follow the religion of grace, it's not about what we do, but it's about what he has done. Not what we do, but rather what God has done. So this morning, as we look in the first five verses here of chapter 10, I want to trace Paul's explanation of unbelief, the unbelief of Israel, and I want to do it in the process sharing with you three reasons why religious people go to hell. Three reasons why religious people go to hell. And I want to do it the heart of the Apostle Paul, that is, not in a cold and clinical theological way, but as beseeching you to listen carefully to the Word of God and let the Spirit speak to your heart. Follow me as I read, please, beginning in verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes that a man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness. Three reasons for you this morning why religious people go to hell. The first, in verse 2, is that religious passion is ineffective. Religious passion is ineffective. The nation of Israel in the day of Paul had an incredible zeal for God. He says it right here, verse 2, I bear witness they have. A zeal for God. They were incredibly passionate and zealous for their God. This passion, this zeal for God has grew out of the Babylonian captivity. And it culminated during the 400 silent years between the close of the Old Testament and the opening of the New. It was cultivated during that time. So when the pages of the New Testament open, we're introduced to this group called the Pharisees. The sect of the Pharisees. And they who were known for their passion, for their zeal for the God of Israel, had come to dominate public life in the nation of Israel. They were the example of what it meant to be a follower of Yahweh. They were the model under which people were to, to follow along, as it were, in their zeal for God. They were considered the ultimate in faithful Jew. And it was considered such because they were fastidious in their law keeping. They were devoted to every single minute detail, both God's law and theirs that they added on. They embodied what it meant to be a faithful, zealous Jew. In fact, one might even call them a religious fanatic. They were religious fanatics, which is a fact that Paul knew only too well because he himself was a former 
Pharisee, right? Paul says in Galatians chapter 1, verse 14, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. Or Philippians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, uh, Paul says he's a Hebrew of the Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. Paul was at the pinnacle of what it meant to chase after God through zealous devotion and law-keeping. Even today, even today within the ranks of Orthodox Judaism, there remains a, a great deal of passion, a great deal of zeal for the God of their fathers. I mean, just consider with me that familiar picture of a man clothed all in black standing in front of the wailing wall and rocking back and forth as he mutters his prayers to his God, fervently calling upon him. This, this zeal is still there in the nation even to this day. Now, Paul is not criticizing religious passion. He is not criticizing it. In fact, if, if you're indifferent to the things of God, if the things of God don't excite in you any level of passion at all, then that's a sign of a serious spiritual problem within your own heart. The things of God should excite you. They should be a sense of zeal. But the point is, is that passion alone, zeal alone, is not sufficient. Look again at the verse Paul says, I bear them witness they have a zeal for God. Look at this, but not in accordance with knowledge. Not in accordance with knowledge. Our passion has to be informed. Our passion has to be directed by truth. Just mere religious passion alone is ineffective in making one right before God. Secondly, Secondly, religious pursuits are impotent. Religious pursuits are impotent. And that is in verse 3. Paul says, For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Paul says that his countrymen are ignorant. They're ignorant of something. They don't know something. And what is it that they don't know? He tells us right here, verse 3 at the beginning, what they don't know is about God's righteousness. Now, it's not that Israel didn't know God was righteous. They absolutely knew that. They were convinced of that. What they did not know and what they failed to recognize was that they could never achieve that same level of righteousness, the necessary level of righteousness by their own religious efforts. They knew God is a righteous God. That was never in doubt with them. The problem was is that they thought they could get there by their own religious pursuits. The righteousness of God here, verse 3, is a reference to the status of righteousness. The status of righteousness that's required of all individuals before they stand before God. If one fails at this, if one does not have this righteousness, the righteousness that God requires, one cannot stand in the judgment. One cannot stand. And the righteousness 
that God requires is only available by grace. It is only available by grace through faith in the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Beloved, in other words, what they were ignorant of was the gospel. The gospel itself. Remember back with me to Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, where Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith that is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. Now this ignorance that Paul's talking about here in verse 3, this ignorance is not born out of innocence. They are not ignorant or not innocent in their ignorance. But rather the ignorance stems out of a willful disregard for their own scriptures. Let your eyes just go back up the page a couple of verses into the end of chapter 9 where Paul says, Israel, verse 31, pursuing a law of righteousness did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. It was not an innocent ignorance. It was a willful ignorance. It was a hard-hearted, disobedient ignorance. It was a willful disregard for their own Scriptures. Every single time an Israelite read from the Word of God, every single time they participated in a temple ritual, they should have recognized three things. Three things should have come screaming out at them. That sin is deadly and can only be satisfied by the blood of an innocent sacrifice. Sin is a deadly, serious disease that can only be satisfied by the blood of an innocent sacrifice. Beyond that, even the best that a man can offer is defiled and thus cannot make the giver right before a holy God. And third, that God in His grace has provided a means by which a defiled sinner can be made right before Him. And that means is the sacrificial death of His Messiah. All of that reality is screaming at the page, off the pages of their Old Testament. Every time they slaughtered a lamb, it was screaming at them. And yet they wouldn't hear. They wouldn't hear. Rather than embrace this reality by faith, rather than depend upon the gift of God's righteousness to be given to them, individual Jews and the vast majority of people today instead prefer to rely upon their own attempts at righteousness. They prefer to rely on coming before God based on their own religious effort, their own religious zeal. They refuse, look again at verse 3, they refuse to subject themselves to the righteousness of God, seeking to establish their own. Beloved, the righteousness that God provides through the gospel is not merely something that you understand with your head. It is not merely a, a mental assent. You hear these things and you go, yeah, yeah okay, that's true. I, I, I understand that. I agree with that. 
It's also something we must submit ourselves to. Look again, verse 3. They did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. We must submit to the gospel. That is, that we must give up on trying to establish our own righteous standing before God and we must humbly allow Him to clothe us with an alien righteousness, a righteousness which is not our own. In fact, His righteousness made available through Jesus Christ. And until a person is willing to humble their heart and receive this gift, then they remain relying on the religion of self-effort, a religion that will fail them in the judgment day. We have an illustration of this relying upon alien righteousness back in the Old Testament and the prophet Zechariah. Don't turn there because pages are probably stuck together for half of you, but Zechariah. We'll get there. If you're reading through the Bible with me in a year, you'll get there, okay? But it's not going to be until into the summer. Zechariah chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. Joshua there, the high priest, was clothed, the prophet tells us, with filthy garments was standing before the angel. And he spoke and he said to those who were standing before him, saying, Remove the filthy garments from him. Again, he said to him, See, I have taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with festal robes. That's the picture. Joshua, the high priest, was standing there, it says, with filthy garments, literally garments of excrement. God says to the angel, Take those garments off him. And clothe them instead in festal robes. When we submit ourselves to the gospel of Jesus Christ, when we by faith embrace the reality that grace is the only means by which we can be made right with God, then the Spirit of God removes those filthy garments from us and clothes us instead with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You can't stand before God on your own self-effort. You stand only before Him by grace and what He has done for you. Listen to me this morning. If you're trying to establish or trying to earn your place before God based on your religious works, no matter how devoted you are to them, no matter how spectacular they might be, go ahead and make a list. All the things you've done for God Jesus has something very, very sobering to say to you. Very sobering. He says in Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven... Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name... And in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. You want to stack up your religious works against that? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Religious ritual is impotent. It doesn't matter how spectacular it might be. 
You can not stand in the judgment pointing only to your good works. You cannot stand in the judgment pointing to your passion for God. And third, religious performance is imperfect. Religious performance is imperfect. You cannot stand in the judgment pointing to your law-keeping. Drop down to verse 5. We'll come back to 4 in a moment. Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness. Paul's quoting Leviticus chapter 18 and verse 5. There Moses is summoning the people of Israel to be obedient to the law of God. And Moses says to them that based on your obedience to the law, you will Prolong your enjoyment of the promised land and its blessings. This verse is not speaking about eternal life. Paul clearly does not believe that the Old Testament teaches that true righteousness is based upon law-keeping. Paul is not teaching that Christ has replaced an old way of salvation, law-keeping, with a new way of salvation, faith in Him. Salvation has always and only been by grace through faith based on the revelation of God. So why does Paul quote Leviticus 18.5 here? What's the point? A point I believe that Paul brings forward out of this verse, this citation, is that there is a principle that is inherent in law. And it's the principle he's after. And the principle is that perfect obedience would confer life eternally. Perfect obedience to the law of God would confer eternal life. But there's a big problem, isn't there? There's a big problem. The big problem is... There's no room for error. There's no room for error. If you want to stand before God in the end and point to your obedience to His law, you have no room for error. James says in James 2.10, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point is guilty of all. And see, that's our problem. It's because our religious performance is imperfect. It's imperfect. In order for a person to get to heaven by law-keeping, he must keep all the law, all the time, externally and internally. No slip-ups. No days off. No mess-ups. No wandering thoughts. Beloved, we know this is a human impossibility, don't we? The standard is perfection. Absolute, total perfection. But if there's one thing we know, it's that nobody's, fill it in for me, perfect. 
That rolls off our tongue like an excuse. Well, nobody's perfect. That is a statement of self-condemnation. That is a statement of self-condemnation. When you seek to exclude, excuse yourself by saying nobody's perfect, what you have just done is rendered the guilty verdict on your life. Nobody's perfect. Or said it another way, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Nobody's perfect. All stand condemned. All will go to the judgment and off to the lake of fire. Unless God intervenes. Unless God intervenes. Praise God, He has. Praise God, He has. Look at verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. This is perhaps one of Paul's most famous theological slogans. What Paul is saying here, essentially, is that with the arrival of Jesus Christ, the, the false understanding of the law is the means by which one can secure his righteousness before God has ended. It's over. When we give up on our own law-keeping, when we give up on our own religious deeds, when we give up on relying upon our zeal, when we rely wholly upon Him to supply the righteousness that we lack, then all attempts before God to be right by law-keeping are terminated, are ended. That's what Paul's saying. The arrival of Christ has ended it. It's over. Think with me on this for a moment. If you could be right with God without the death of Jesus Christ, then for God to send His only Son to be punished in the brutal way He was punished, to die the excruciating and agonizing death He died, to, to have the fellowship that existed for all eternity momentarily disrupted there on the cross would be an act of monstrous Barbarity. If there were any other way, do you think God would slaughter His own Son? That's why Paul says, the coming death of Messiah, law-keeping, is over. It's over. Simply put, the Jewish system was one of doing. One of doing. God's is one of believing. Doing versus believing. And this is the good news. This is the good news. Listen to me. Because Christ has come, everyone can get off the treadmill. Everyone. Everyone. Get 
off the treadmill. Stop trying to achieve and attain a righteous status before God by your own self-effort. Give it up. Give it up. The idea of righteousness before a holy God based on law-keeping, that's phantom righteousness. Phantom righteousness. It's an illusion. It's an illusion. It's a, it's a cruel, deadly, soul-damning illusion that lock people into the bonds, spiritual chains, bondage. Look around the world. What characterizes the religion of man? What a fruitless treadmill of religious activity over and over and over again. When is enough enough? When have you achieved the level of righteousness that you need? How do you know one more gift or one more uh, effort would have done it for you? Silly. It's damning. My fear is this morning that some of you are caught in this trap. This is the trap you're in. You are seeking to earn your way into heaven. Somehow, deep down in the recesses of your heart, you think you're the exception. They've got to look at your life, and He will see such performance that it'll be good enough. He'll welcome you in. Listen to me. Listen to me. If Israel couldn't do it, you can't do it either. We're talking about a nation given to the pursuit of God. In particular, as embodied in the Pharisees. Nobody Nobody is better at religion than the Pharisees were. They were the consummate religionists. They were the law keepers. They were the zealots. They didn't just work at it part time. It consumed them. Jesus said, Matthew 5, verse 20, For I say to you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Listen to me. Listen to me, you who are trusting in your religious effort. You who want to be judged upon your ability to keep the law of God. 
You who believe that your good works are going to get you there in the end. If the Pharisees can't get in, what makes you think you can? Do you really want to stack it up against them? Listen, not baptism, not church membership, not religious zeal, not piling up good deeds. There is only one way to be right with God, that is to renounce your self-effort and cast yourself on the mercy of God. pray in a moment. When I finish praying, I'm going to go stand over here by this lighted cross. God has been speaking to you this morning. It's not if God has been speaking to you. God has been speaking to you. The Word of God has been opened to you. You have heard Now listen to me. This isn't just for one or two people. This is for all of us. This is for all of us. We have all heard the Word of God. We must all respond to what we've heard. Some of you specifically are trusting in your own effort. Your own religion. Some brew you've put together of zeal and religious deeds and law keeping and whatever else you've thrown into the mix. Based on the Word of God, I'm telling you right now, you must abandon these efforts. You must give up on this. You must declare spiritual bankruptcy and throw yourself on the mercy of Jesus Christ. I'm asking you to get up out of your seat and join me over in that cross so I can open the Bible with you and show you exactly and clearly how you can have life and life everlasting. Others of you know specifically that you need to be baptized. You know it. The Spirit of God was pressing on you last week and you resisted. The Spirit of God has pressed upon you this week and you are still resisting. I'm warning you. I am warning you. Today, when you hear the Word of God, do not harden your hearts. Do not. You come and you join me over here and... Again, let me open the Scriptures with you and show you the way of salvation. How you can make it public through baptism. For everybody else. The instruments are going to come and they're going to play, play and I want you to close your eyes. I want you to close your eyes and I want you to meditate for a few moments. 
upon what you have heard. Let the Spirit of God search your heart. Meditate on this sermon. Ask yourself, how does it apply to me? Okay, I'm not trusting in my religious works to make me right with God, but am I trusting in them to keep me right? Or maybe there's some other area of your life that you have been holding back from God, something that you have reserved for only yourself. God, you can have my whole life except for this one thing. By the way, next week we're going to get to the passage in verse 9 where it says that you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord. And we're going to take the time to unpack what that statement means. And it is not something glib that comes off one's tongue. Is Christ Lord in your life today? The instruments pray or play silently. I want you to meditate. You'll know when it's time to go. The benediction or the postlude will come and you'll know. Let me pray and invite you to come and join me. Our Father, your word is spoken to us this morning. Whenever we open it and whenever we read it, you are speaking. Your Spirit has something to say to every single one of us, Father. And so I pray that even now in these few moments that You would not allow the evil one to come and to steal away the Word. Let us meditate upon its truth and Lord, may You apply it individually to each of us that we might grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Mm-hmm.